a lot of our teachings are meant to be uh, hopefully inspirational, encouraging, uh, but a lot of them are, are really meant to be normalizing, normalizing uh, what we experience as just part of the human condition. And tonight, I think Anna both provided both last night very beautifully in her talk, where she talked about the, uh, the one way of putting it, she talked about the noble eightfold path, the fourth truth of the four noble truths, the three parts of the eightfold path, sila, samadhi, panya, and really uh, spoke about the, this beautiful possibility of what's sometimes called the purification of action, purification of mind, and purification of view. That every single moment of our bringing our careful awareness to our experience, we're in one way, as one teacher puts it, we're brushing the dust of memory so that the clear mirror of our mind is laid bare so we can actually see really clearly because it it is a, a result of, you could say, the lack of clear perception that we tend to get confused, we tend to cling, we tend to hold on to things. And it is precisely purifying or clarifying our mind, uh, purifying our view that leads us to be able to see things as they are. And that is basically the definition of insight meditation is seeing things as they are, seeing clearly. And when we see clearly, quite naturally, our hearts open, our bodies ease, and that is really uh, the possibility. But it is it is central in the Buddha's teaching that what um, needs to be seen clearly is the state of our condition, is the state of our mind, the state of our body. And clearly, if you're doing meditation and yoga all day, you will come face to face with the, not the sudden realization, but the gradual realization that not you're, that you're completely crazy, but that you, as a human being, you, it's stressful. It's not easy to be here if we're really here. But it's precisely that opening to that reality that, um, that begins to loosen the tendency of our mind to run from it. And it's the tendency of our mind to run from this moment, to run after uh, something that we think will be better, that, that adds to the stress that we have. And so I'd like to talk about that tonight in the form of the, uh, what are the first three of the Four Noble Truths. The Four Noble Truths are the, uh, you could say, the practice manual for our time here. They are the, what's referred to as the teachings, the teachings, um, the, the teachings of the Buddha. Now, when I say that, I'm always reminded that the, the teachings of the Buddha reflect what he realized through his, his own attention. They weren't a philosophy that he adopted based on just thinking about things. It was something that was born out of coming face to face with his own uh, condition. And, and his realization, what he came to see through, re- through his own awareness, 
and what you dis- what you discover through your own awareness is that um, is whatever we see with our direct experience backing up a little bit whatever you see with your direct experience leads to a sense of confidence leads to a sense of faith leads to a a kind of unshakable sense of I've seen clearly I see what this is and then we are not as easily swayed by by different philosophies different views and Anna spoke about the difference between philosophy and practice practice leads to that verified what the buddha called verified faith and so it invites us it asks us the practice asks us to do create whatever conditions we can to look as closely for ourselves at what's going on what's going on moment to moment so what you see is no longer uh, you're no longer consulting your memory to define your experience you're no longer consulting a bible you're no longer consulting even the buddha's teachings once you've seen for yourself directly and this is what happened to him when he began his practice he was just like the rest of us he just was restless and agitated just dissatisfied and and had that sense that something was not quite right and and probably the thought that it was you know something's not quite right with me any of you ever have that thought <laughs> and he was curious about what could possibly bring a sense of relief to this this feeling of queasiness this feeling of angst and his as most of you know the story his father protected him from really uh, being able to see the world clearly and yet he was somehow he managed to go out he his he saw and I'm reminded as I say all this he saw everything through the template through the lens of this body and when after his awakening one of his most i'd say pithy utterances sayings teachings was within this fathom long body with its perceptions and inner sense lies the world lies the cause of the world lies the end of the world and lies the path that leads to the end of the world so without this body without this body that you've been caring for with its perceptions and inner sense there you would not be able to experience the world there would be no world there is no world apart from this body with its perceptions and inner sense so if you think of the buddha going out registering with these amazing sense doors the eyes seeing as he wandered around the the lands that his uh, father governed over he saw with his own eyes and it registered without this eye couldn't have seen it he saw an extremely old person and then with his eyes he saw an extremely um a person who is extremely ill he saw the reality with his eyes and felt with his heart the reality of sickness and old age and then he is said to have seen a corpse 
And you may wonder why this is highlighted so much in the teachings, why the teachings say the Buddha in his wanderings, what really turned him toward the Dharma was the, what are called the heavenly messengers. He saw the heavenly message, that they're called heavenly messengers because they, they wake us up out of our delusion. But he saw the heavenly messengers of sickness, of old age, of death, and he saw the heavenly messenger of, as a um, mendicant, somebody who, who demonstrated, who represented a, the, that path of renunciation, that, that path of letting go that Anna spoke of last night. So this happened through his senses, through this body. And this, this is highlighted in the teachings, I think, this story is highlighted, because of our tendency, our capacity, to have our perception clouded by an unwillingness, a kind of self-deception, an unwillingness to see this most obvious fact that all of us know intellectually, that we are, uh, as one person put it, we are sinking ships from the moment we're born. The very defin- <laughs> the definition of birth is that the, it's the leading cause of death. <laughs> and yet, somehow, we fail to see this. And you've all heard the teachings from the Bhagavad Gita, most of you probably have, where there's this dialogue about what the most wondrous thing in this world is. And the response is the most wondrous thing in this world is that all five, six, seven billion of us will, will be replaced within a hundred years, but somehow we don't think it will happen to us. <laughs> and I was recently reading a book by Ajahn Chah, the wonderful Thai forest master, who was describing his monastery in Thailand and how when you enter his monastery, there are skeletons. You see this at a lot of monasteries throughout Southeast Asia, but there are skeletons hanging in the monastery. And that's to remind people of the fact that we're literally walking around with a skeleton everywhere we go. It's nearer than our breath, really, this skeleton. And without it, we wouldn't be here. But the, the moment people see the skeletons, that even, the, even the old people, even people that have, a, have had a lifetime to digest this fact, go running out of the monastery because it freaks them out. And it speaks to this, um, this inability to face things the way they are. So in the case of this, this confrontation, this moment of really getting with the body, getting the felt experience, the impact of that truth. Of course, he was seeing it, the macrocosmic the macro version of it. You could see that that was just a truth. It really had the effect of piercing his heart. And it, it dawned on him that that was going to happen to him. And he felt that through the body too. Everything of any great impact we feel through the body. And it's what really gives us the, the information, the, the wisdom of, of what's really true. It gives us that sense of resonance. I remember the first time that I went to a Dharma talk uh, that was given about the Four Noble Truths. The teacher was uh, Joseph Goldstein, and he has a, a, just a, a beautiful transmission power, just a, just a capacity to just say it like it is. 
just unvarnished. And I heard the teaching on the, on the uh, truth that life has these, has these things that are difficult to bear in it, that there is sickness, there's old age and death, there's the, the tendency to uh, not get what you want and to not want what you get. And there's, and there's a lot of hardship in being separated from the things that you really love. That's not easy to bear. And he said it, and I started to cry. And I wasn't crying because I was freaked out by it. I was crying because I was happy. That it's, it pierced my heart. It, somebody was saying how it is. And I didn't have to be... It kind of woke me up out of, out of running from this truth. And I was happy to be touched in that way. So the Buddha said that based on his own experience, because it had the effect on him of piercing his heart, of opening his heart, he said that there's a, this is true about our life and that he had a prescription for dealing with it. And what's the prescription? Open to it. Open to the fact that if you are born, there are things that you will face that are hard to bear. There is no one that is immune to that, uh, that reality. So it's a, um, so in order to, to really let go, to fulfill that path of renunciation, we have to see that, that, it, that it is futile, futile to, uh, to keep holding on, to keep holding on to some kind of false view, some kind of misperception that somehow it won't happen to me. And this is not, this is not pessimistic. <laughs> That's sometimes the, the Buddha's teaching on dukkha. Dukkha is the word for, sometimes loosely translated as suffering, but the more accurate translation is that it's hard to bear, stressful, queasy, uh, unreliable, un- uncontrollable, that life has these elements to it. And it's not pessimistic, it's realistic. This is just how it is. How do you feel hearing it? I don't expect you all to cry, but but somehow just being able to say it, it it brings an ease to my heart, a kind of happiness. So the Buddha also saw that what keeps us, what keeps us, what was keeping him bound uh, to um, to this this uh, world of of um, addiction to the world of pleasures. Not that the world is not exceedingly pleasurable at times, but addiction or devotion to the pleasures of the world was not seeing clearly that everything, every pleasure that we experience, every single experience that we have is of the nature to change. And if we don't really know that directly, feel it in our body, feel it as it, as it happens. I mean, we can see the truth of that just if you sit for one moment. It's not so far away impermanence. Whatever you thought of a moment ago is gone. 
But if we don't recognize this directly, we tend to not see that if we devote ourselves to some experience that is fleeting, I don't mean enjoy that experience. I mean devote ourselves to spend lots of our time looking for it. We actually keep perpetuating. We keep ourselves in a state of perpetual seeking, perpetual waiting, perpetual hoping, perpetual expecting. Turning the present experience that we're having into one that is just a, as Eckhart Tolle put it, just just a pass-through on our way to something else. And what it deprives us of is the the richness of life, the only place that we can find it. What deprives us is, is actually stepping off of that wheel of endlessly waiting, stepping off of that, that gerbil wheel of endless waiting, and we deprive ourselves of the peace and ease that is the, the natural state of our minds. And this is why we practice, of course. This is why we keep telling you uh, through the yoga, through the meditation practice, to uh, keep your attention, this natural, ever-present attention, keep it in your body. Don't let your mind, as one teacher put it, don't let your mind leave your body. So he saw this in his own mind. So he saw that it wasn't the ever-changing experience that it was ultimately problematic. That's just the way it is. What he saw was that in his own experience, and we're inviting you to really look at this moment to moment throughout these days, that it was, it's not just the fact that things arise and change and are unreliable and are and, they just, and it just happens all by itself. But that every moment's experience produces, along with it, a feeling. Every single moment comes with a little feeling. And that feeling that it comes along with is either a pleasant feeling, an unpleasant feeling, or a neither pleasant or unpleasant. And what he saw was that it's not so much the the fact that we have feelings, it's a wonderful thing that we have feelings. That's how we register things through our body and in our mind. But it is, the, to, it is when we are unaware of that intimacy of feeling that we don't notice that also moment to moment, when we have unawareness, that there's a reaction to those feelings. There's a reaction to the pleasant of liking there's a reaction to the unpleasant of not liking. There's a, re- uh, there's a reaction to the neutral of not noticing, of, of falling into a kind of delusion or spacing out. And when he saw this, he saw also that once he was able to be moment to moment aware of that feeling tone, This will be as part of tomorrow's instruction when he was able to sense. And I want to invite you even right now to sense whatever your experience is. Is it 
marked with a pleasantness, an unpleasant, or neither pleasant or unpleasant. Could be, um, could be sensations that you're feeling in your body. It could be your attitude. Could be your mood. Could be the last thought that you had. Is it pleasant? Is it unpleasant? Is it neutral? This is really the arena of our examination. That we don't even need to, we, we don't need to leave our body to find everything that we need to uh, discover the nature of reality, to experience for ourselves uh, what he called the, the sure heart's release. And in fact, it's precisely the tendency of our mind to go out and search for it somewhere else that uh, keeps us from experiencing it. So the first truth that life has within it difficulties, it has sickness, it has old age, it has death. The prescription, this, Buddha said, this must be open to, this must be welcomed. And as, uh, Jen- as Jennifer Wellwood, I know she was quoted last night, uh, as she said in her poem called Dakini, The Dakini Speaks, she says, my friends, let's grow up. Let's stop pretending we don't know the deal here. Or if we, haven't, if we truly haven't noticed, let's wake up and notice. Look, everything that can be lost will be lost. It's simple. How could we have missed it for so long? Let's grieve our losses fully like ripe human beings. But please, let's not be so shocked by them. Let's not act so betrayed as though life had broken her secret promise to us. Impermanence is life's only promise to us, and she keeps it with ruthless impeccability. To a child she seems cruel, but she is only wild, and her compassion exquisitely precise, brilliantly penetrating, luminous with truth. She strips away the unreal to show us the real. This is the true ride. Let's give ourselves to it. Let's stop making deals for a safe passage. There isn't one anyway. And the cost is too high. We're not children anymore. The true human adult gives everything for what cannot be lost. Let's dance the wild dance of no hope. I like the way that um, Pablo Neruda put it. His version of, of... Letting go of the very same thing that happened to the Buddha, letting go of what are called the three prides. The pride in youth, the pride in health, and the pride in life. This is Pablo Neruda. What we know comes to so little, what we presume is so much, what we learn so laborious. We can only ask the questions and die. (laughs) Better save all our pride for the city of the dead and the day of the carrion. There, when the wind shifts through the hollows of your skull, it will show you all manner of enigmatical things, whispering truths in the void where your ears used to be. (laughs) I always like that one. So this is 
an invitation through our body to just feel what it's like to be human. To, as the poet Hafiz says, to cut it, let it cut more deep. To let it ferment and season you. As he says, as few human or divine ingredients can. And he says, when you really let yourself feel things deeply through the body, whatever it is, the state of your body, whatever you've been kind of hovering, being in that place of being disembodied, gradually, slowly, slowly, as it ferments you, as it, as it uh, tenderizes you, you, you may sense, as he describes in the last part of his poem, he says, Some, something missing in my heart has made my eyes so soft, my voice so tender, my need of the truth absolutely clear. So that's what we're doing. You may have thought you were just having a hard time the first few days, but you're actually having insight into the first noble truth. So please open to it. So when the when the Buddha sat on the Bodhi under the Bodhi tree and and through his direct experience saw these different reactions in his mind. And he he saw that how everything was arising and changing. The more he paid attention to all of that, the more he was just with things as they were. There were two things that happened. Whatever he noticed came and it went. But as he noticed it, his, his attention got brighter and brighter. So the, this is a, especially, I find it interesting, when my attention can light on things that may be slightly unpleasant or even very unpleasant, that what seems like a, a difficulty, my body hurts. And we, we have to enter into this relationship with our body gingerly sometimes because sometimes there's a lot of reactivity to feeling the discomfort that, that comes in our practice. But slowly, slowly, we come a little bit closer to our experience. And interestingly enough, the most unpleasant experiences, once we're able to, to hang out with them a little bit, to accept them, to investigate them, not in terms of why am I feeling this and thinking about it and analyzing it, but, but what is the quality of this experience and what happens to it when I notice it? That the, un, the unpleasant experience, like, even, like unpleasant emotions, and we'll include those in the practice as well, the unpleasant experiences tend to rivet the attention that much more. They actually brighten the mind even more so than the pleasant ones. And it's a reminder that the unique, um, the unique gift of being human is that our difficulties um, become the cause of, our, of our, um, our freedom, our understanding. They become our path. So we're not just stuck with a, a, a painful body. It, become, it can become the source of, um, of well-being a source of non-reaction, a source of, of, of wisdom, a source of balance. 
So the Buddha was sitting there, his mind got brighter and brighter. And, and he was able to tease out what happens when you react with liking to something pleasant. He saw that what happens in these simple moments, and when I say simple moments, it's a reminder that the whole of our life, everything that you experience comes down to simple moments unfolding. The whole sense of the drama of your life, the whole story of your life is, is precisely that. It's, it's, a, it's an elaboration on basically six experiences. The whole of our life are six experiences repeating themselves over and over. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. Consciousness of these arising and passing moment by moment. That is, as the Buddha called it, that's the all. That's all there is, folks. But because of these little reactions in our mind, I like this. And if that goes unnoticed, that usually is followed very quickly by what? Craving. I want this. I like it. I want it. And then what often follows is I have to have it. And when that's repeated over and over, it hardens into what we call clinging and attachment. And what that clinging and attachment does, that tension that builds up in our mind and and then is felt in our body, is it ignites, it it produces a, um, a world, a world of seeking. How am I going to get what I want? Or how am I going to get rid of what I don't want? And I told myself I wouldn't talk about this, but there's so many new people on this retreat that I have to, have to talk about it, that there's a phenomena that we can begin to pay attention to. Uh, maybe, maybe you were going, were you going to do this tomorrow night? VR, VV. The VR and the VV. You can have it. No, no, no. <laughs> I'll do it more in the general. Just notice what happens when there's something you experience that you don't like. Or just reflect on your day. Was there something or some person on the retreat that triggered a little reaction in you? Was there something you heard or saw that you really liked? Something you tasted? Well, the process that our mind goes through is that we don't just stay with that simple experience of tasting or seeing or experiencing someone. We don't usually just stay with the experience, oh, that was pleasant or that was unpleasant or that was neutral. The different reactions to those experiences usually generates this whole story, this whole world of our imagination, this whole world of how I am going to get from here to there, how how I'm going to either get more of what I don't have or get rid of what I do have. And I I know that that the second day tends to be the beginning of of the tendency to start to to really proliferate a lot, uh, to react a lot to things. And so we go through periods of being quite reactive. 
And we want to, as much as we're able to, feel what that's like in our body. Feel the, feel the, the pleasantness, the unpleasantness of things. And it's understood, if we pay attention, that once you connect with, once you're able to feel just the pleasantness of something, that, that the effect of bringing, uh, bringing awareness to that pleasant or unpleasant experience is it, it functions as a, like a scissors. It cuts the chain that would usually lead that into a, into a, um, a search. What the Buddha called this process of, um, of craving, of clinging, of attachment, he called it uh, tanha or thirst. This thirst for what's next. This thirst for getting rid of, this thirst that expresses in its extreme the, the thirst to just have everything shut off or the thirst uh, in its most pleasure and its most pleasant to just want to be like that character that's in advertisement, his name Spence, who Spence is uh, someone who uh, put a new twist, the advertisement goes, he put a new twist on an old philosophy, to be one with everything, I have to have one of everything. So it's that, it's that mind that's in a constant state of search. So this is what the, what the Buddha saw very carefully in his mind. And the more he saw it, the more he saw that this is what keeps beings in an endless state of dissatisfaction. This constant search for what I don't have and attempt to get rid of what I do have. And it's really exhausting for all of us, as the Dalai Lama puts it. He says, when asked what surprised him most about human beings, he said, man, because he sacrifices his health in order to make money, then he sacrifices money to recuperate his health. And then he's so anxious about the future that he does not enjoy the present, the result being that he does not live in the present or the future. He lives as if he's never going to die and he dies having never really lived. So all this springs from a culture that, uh, that is all about making us happy, but actually deprives us of the source of real joy. It can only be found in the unmasking, the unraveling, and the awakening to the, uh, the reality, the only reality of the present moment. And when I say the reality of the present moment, it's after that word present moment is gone. And it's after the last thought has gone, and before the next one comes. And when we touch that, even in moments of unpleasantness, there's a certain peace is there. There's a certain space there. There's a certain openness. And we don't, and we didn't, I didn't, we didn't go anywhere when we looked at that. But our mind is trained to be in this state, what he called the state of becoming or the state of craving, craving for pleasure, craving for non-becoming, And his prescription for dealing with this is what he called the cause of suffering. So this is the second stanza in that poem that I started. 
within this fathom-long body, with its, with its perceptions and inner sense, lies the world, lies the cause of the world. What leads the, the world that we find ourselves, what leads us into what's called samsara, this endless searching, keep recreating the world of our imagination, the world of becoming, what keeps fueling that, it happens within this fathom-long body with its perceptions and inner sense. That whole world of creation is caused moment by moment. This is the, the bad news part of the teachings. There's dukkha, there's the cause of dukkha, and the prescription for, for dealing with this cause is, as Anna spoke about in the, uh, in the wise intention part of the, of the panya, the, the prescription is to let go, is to abandon this cause of suffering. Stop going out of yourself in search. Stay here. And don't wait. As one of my teachers said, no buts. Because our mind will go but, and then we're off and running, trying to get somewhere again. So try no buts for a moment. Because we're, we're exhausted. We're, we're sad. As... Alexis de Tocqueville said, I think this is from the 1700s, he says, in America I've seen the freest and best educated people in the circumstances the happiest to be found in the world. Yet it seemed to me that a cloud habitually hung over their brow and they seemed almost sad in their pleasure because they never stopped thinking of the good things they have not got yet. So our friend Ajahn Sumedho wonderful monk says, uh, just simplify your practice down to two words, let go. He says, rather than try to develop this practice and go into that and, and read the sutras and study Buddhist psychology, learn the, uh, the Majamaka and the Prajnaparamita and get ordinations, become a nun or a monk and in the Hinayana, the Mahayana, the Vajrayana tradition, and become a world-renowned authority on Buddhism, instead of becoming the world authority on Buddhism and being invited to great international Buddhist conferences, just let go. He says, I didn't do anything but that for about two years. Every time I tried to understand or figure things out, I'd just say, let go, until the desire would fade out. He says, so I'm making it simple for you to save you from getting caught in incredible amounts of suffering. He says, there's nothing more sorrowful than having to attend international Buddhist conferences. (laughs) But this letting go is really not just a a general letting go. It's something that that we practice moment by moment. It means letting go, letting be is a, sometimes even a better word. It means let your experience be the way it is. Let it come and let it go. Let the winds of, of change blow through your being. Let the moods flow through your consciousness. Let the sensations move. Because what often happens is we, we try to block the river. 
And instead of, as they say, go with the flow, or we try to push the river, try to help, as some call it, helping the Dharma along. And the Native Americans have this wonderful expression, just stay behind the medicine. It's another way of saying, just let things unfold. Settle back into the moment. This is a, all these flavors of, of letting go or letting be. Things as they are. This is what it's about. It's so relaxing. It's so hard. It's such hard work to keep holding on. And it's so easy to let go. It takes no effort. And it takes no time. How long does it take to come back to yourself? So I was, in the last moments, I was just alluding to uh, the good news part of the teachings, uh, encapsulated in the third noble truth. The first truth, within this fathom-long body, uh, with its perceptions and inner sense, lies the world, lies the cause of the world. The third stanza, within this fathom-long body, with its senses, perceptions and inner sense, lies the end of the world. The end of that world that we keep creating in our mind that just endlessly turns our life into a, a profound drama of, of, um, of thinking uh, somewhere, someone, we need to become someone else, get somewhere else. There is an end to that. There is an end to that tight fist of, of grasping. That in any moment, Open space is there, inviting, comfortable, ease. And the Buddha's, the Buddha's prescription for the end of suffering, the end of struggle, the end of being in contention with reality, the end of, of endlessly trying to make things different than the way they are. This is the, the other way that the second truth is described as that chronic tendency to want things to be other than they are. That prescription for this end of suffering is to realize it. And interestingly enough, and luckily enough, every moment that you simply can say, as Anna has been asking you, are you aware? Any moment that you're aware, any moment that you're aware of what you're aware of, and every moment that you're experiencing that with, a, with an openness, just seeing it the way it is, whatever it is, whether it's aching or burning or stabbing or itching or tingling or sad or wanting or whatever, sorrow, whatever it is, in that moment, there is the, there is the cessation, the falling away of struggle. It may not be the, the great cessation. It may not be the, the ultimate uprooting of the tendency to get caught up in, in things. But moment by moment, it's a drop in the bucket. It's another 
another form of nirvana, which is simply the cessation of grasping, another name for nirvana, another name for enlightenment. We lighten up in that moment of just being with things as they are. As a staff member at uh, Spirit Rock wrote to me at the end of one retreat, she wrote me a little haiku. She said, the sure heart's release goes something like this. Aha, well-being lives here. And this is uh, from Franz Kafka. You need not do anything. Just sit at your table and wait. You need not even wait. Just listen. You need not even listen. Just become still, quiet, and solitary. And the world will freely offer itself to you to be revealed. It has no choice. It will roll in ecstasy at your feet. Now, it's easy to speak poetically about this possibility of freedom, but sometimes it is, it's really just being with things that are uh, really hard to bear. And within that, there is both the, the fact of dukkha, there is the, there is the uh, we see that uh, at least uh, related to whatever has happened, there is, there is the cause of dukkha, and in that moment, there is the, there is the end of dukkha. And someone passed on a story to me about um, four or five months ago that I thought encapsulated uh, beautifully the, the heart version of, of liberation, the heart version of the end of suffering. Uh, and not some kind of ultimate, but a little vignette of how we can, in simple moments, experience uh, a release of our heart. This was a, an article written by the for, and the story told by the former mayor of Salt Lake City, Utah. Uh, and it was about the Dalai Lama. It says, one by one last week, and that's, it, was just, it was written just after the Sandy Hook um, uh, massacre. One by one last week, the tiny bodies of 20 children were laid to rest, as well as the adult heroes who died trying to protect them. We won't soon forget the Sandy Hook school shootings. The pain runs straight to our nation's marrow. The process of mourning these victims of unspeakable violence stretches so far out and for so long. How to begin to understand such grief, whether in your own life or collectively as a citizen of this troubled country? In 1997, I traveled to Dharamsala, India. My former wife, Kathy, and my sister-in-law, Mary Lee, had grown close to the Tibetan community that had resettled in uh, Utah. Perhaps overly impressed with my status as former Salt Lake City mayor, the Tibetans had arranged for me to meet the Dalai Lama and to invite him to Utah. (laughs) It's a great picture, isn't it? I looked forward to meeting His Holiness. Much like any lucky tourist would, I sought no great religious experience or transformative experience. I admired the Dalai Lama's history as an expatriate from from communist China and his reputation as a man of peace. 
I carried letters from Governor Mike Levitt and business leaders and other documents to formally invite the great leader to Utah. I had no idea how deeply spiritual our visit would become. The meeting with His Holiness would rank as one of the most emotional, treasured moments of my life, along with the births of my children, climbing high mountain peaks, and other deeply personal experiences. As we ambled along the streets of Dharamsala, the morning of our appointment with His Holiness, we met by sheer coincidence a Utah couple. They had stayed for several days, hoping for some way to meet the Dalai Lama. We offered to see if they might join us. After relaying passport numbers and other security information, they were granted permission to come along. We entered the Dalai Lama's residence, each holding white, a white Buddhist blessing scarf. He placed the scarves around our necks and uttered a few blessing words. We sat on comfortable couches with the holy man, surrounded by a group of muscular monks. I surmised they were a security detachment. The Dalai Lama opened with small talk, his wit and iconic smile bringing resonant laughter from the, from the guards. A group of designated laughers, I thought with some amusement. We formally invited him to Utah. Then suddenly, the formality dissolved. Looking intently at the couple that, that had joined us that morning, and with no visible cue from anyone, he said, You are sad. Our new friends broke down. Through gentle sobs, they explained their young son had recently committed suicide. A pause hung in the air. The Dalai Lama simply waited and waited. As we muffled sobs, His Holiness slid across the couch and reached for the couple's faces. Grasping their cheeks, he pulled their faces next to his. He held them for perhaps a minute and an eternity for such an intimacy. And then he said softly, simply, sad. He offered no other words, no assurance of heaven as we Westerners have come to expect when dissecting death. He explained nothing. There was no utterance of time heals, no nicety that God needed him elsewhere, nothing. The tears ceased. And we readied ourselves to leave. So the invitation of our practice is to meet ourselves in that same way. When we're happy, happy. When we're sad, sad. When we're aching, ache. Really let each experience touch our heart, touch our mind. In the in the Pali and Sanskrit, the word for heart, mind, are the same word. So there is an end to suffering. And the and the Buddha's uh, prescription was: this must be realized. You must know for yourself that there is a cessation, moment to moment, and. Put, and perhaps, uh, perhaps a more profound uh, letting go, where you, by and large, you, you are able to sit in the middle of everything, right where it touches you. And with that in mind, rather than, I certainly won't go through the fourth noble truth since Anna did that last night. I think I'll just end with, with uh, 
an invitation to sit in the middle of it all. Uh, the wisdom teachings of uh, the little duck. Now we're ready to look at something pretty special. It's a duck riding the ocean 100 feet beyond the surf. No, it isn't a gull. A gull always has a raucous touch about him. This is some sort of duck, and he cuddles in the swells. He isn't cold, and he's thinking things over. There's a big heaving in the Atlantic, and he's part of it. He looks a bit like a Mandarin or the Lord Buddha meditating under the boat tree. But he has hardly enough above the eyes to be a philosopher. He has poise, however, which is what philosophers must have. He can rest while the Atlantic heaves because he rests in the Atlantic. Probably he doesn't know how large the ocean is, and neither do you, but he realizes it. And what does he do, I ask you? He sits down in it. He reposes in the immediate as if it were infinity, which it is. That's religion, and the duck has it. He has made himself part of the boundless by easing himself into it just where it touches him. So without changing position, let's just be quiet. May all beings realize the cessation of suffering. May all beings be free. Thank you for your attention. So I invite you now to take your skeleton... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.